Welcome to Steam Powered, where I have conversations with women in Steam to learn a little bit about what they do and who they are. I'm your host, Michelle Ong. My guest today is Dr. Audrey Lobo Pulo. Audrey is a liminal technologist who is passionate about how technology may be designed for better government and societal outcomes and how information evolves and flows within society. Join us as we talk about context and resilience and how we approach living systems. Welcome, Audrey. Thank you so much for joining me on Steam Powered. It is wonderful to have you on the show today speaking with me about all the amazing stuff that you're doing with, I don't know, policy, data, AI. It's absolutely amazing. I'm so happy and so excited to be here, Michelle. You know, I think um, part of the excitement of this journey and this conversation will be seeing where the next step will take us and exploring some of these topics uh, around data and AI and policy. So, yeah, let's let's go. Amazing. Cool. Well, we'll get started with, you know, where you started with your journey. And, you know, you're in policy and data now, but you started off in physics. So how did you start in physics and, you know, what motivated you to do that? It's a big question, Michelle, and it's something that, um, you know, I've been reflecting back on my own journey in science and tech. And as a child, I was always very curious about nature and the world around me. Um, and so what I hadn't realized at the time was that there was a very def like definite fork in the road for me. And one was around understanding nature in terms of the creatures on the planet and living systems, which I, which I didn't end up going down that path. Um, and the other was understanding, you know, the phenomena in nature around light and um, watching the waves break on, you know, on a beach and trying to understand the patterns in that. And so for me, physics was all about really finding my way to becoming close to nature and understanding nature. Um, and so that was where the love of um, that topic sort of started. And, you know, when I started at school, um, they were probably, you know, an equal kind of a mix in terms of the gender balance between males and females doing um, doing physics. But when I got into university, um, you know, as I was saying, I was just one of two or three women in a class of around 50 to 60. And so, you know, yeah. that's where I really noticed that there was a, a bit of a, a gender um, imbalance. And... Um, it hadn't really dawned on me at that time in terms of, you know, understanding why um, women weren't sort of, you know, being gravitating to the, the sciences and the physics and the, and the tech. Um, but it was certainly something that, you know, more recently has become a, a passion of mine. Oh, that's, yeah, I think it's everyone's becoming so much more aware about these issues that we're facing. And we're starting to see our peers and our colleagues either, you know, going sideways or, you know, changing fields entirely and you know it's such an it's not an old like it's not a new phenomena but you know as we progress in our careers we start to become more you know aware of all of that happening yeah exactly and um you know i i was quite i mean i loved physics and so i was you know tunneling down this path um i did my phd in optical fibers and you know really understanding the way light behaves and thinking about signals and transmission um and at the time, it would have been the early 2000s. So back then, the dot-com bust was a big thing. Um, there was a lot of hype around that. And so it was a really exciting space to be in. Um, spent a bit of time in physics and then thought to myself, you know, um, at the time in Australia, there weren't that many roles in terms of jobs and employment in, in 
uh, for someone who had done um, a course in theoretical physics. So I was like, well, I haven't. I have two choices. I either stay in yeah. Australia or I moved to the US. Um, and at the time, I chose to stay um, and wanted to then sort of, you know, find new ways um, to use the skills that I had honed in and, and the love that I had for, you know, mm. mathematics and modeling. And I was lucky enough to be given the opportunity to start my career um, as a graduate at the Australian Federal Treasury. And the work that I started doing was around modeling um, labor force projections and, you know, really understanding Australia's labor market, um, our demographics, um, Mm. and using some of the models that I had been trained in, um, in a different context. So using it from a... um, a public public policy context and so for me kind of like you know marching into this role I kind of felt like oh you know I, I, I get the tech side I get the data side I get the modeling side um, but what I was <laughs> completely unprepared for was 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 this gap in understanding that the way models work and the paradigm that models are built on is actually quite different to the everyday um, experience from what we see in society and so you know, having yeah. to come from what has been traditionally known as the hard sciences to then um, a world where, you know, there are behavioral impacts and the way people react to mm. certain policies um, don't often go along, um, you know, what to what your model has predicted. Um, and so for me, that was yes. a bit of a shock. It was like, you know, why, why am I creating <laughs> these models? Um, that aren't really, you know, can, can I, what can I do Why better? Why aren't humans behaving the way I expect them to? <laughs> exactly. And so, um, <laughs> you know, there's a deficiency in my model. And that was the thinking at the time, my thinking at the time. It's like, look, yeah. no model's going to be good enough. We're just going to have to keep improving the model till we asymptotically kind of reach this perfection. And how wrong was I? Yeah. Um, you know, it, <laughs> it, it was this striving that, you know, it, it we had to have more terms, we had to have more data, we had to have more assumptions. Um, the models needed to be better. Um, and this quest yes. for perfecting the models without realizing that all this while um, I was actually creating what uh, Alfred Zibowski, I think, I can't remember his last name, says that we're creating maps and the map is not the territory. Korbisky, I think. Um, mm. And so I was so focused on the map trying to mimic the territory that I hadn't realized about, you know, of the value that was embedded in that territory. So, and that was another journey of in, in and of itself. Yes, absolutely. Because there's so many moving parts, so many factors involved in all of the models. Like I was speaking to a statistician a while ago and, you know, she was part of this wider uh, consortium talking about COVID modeling and disease spread. And you can model it all that you like in the way that you think diseases have to spread, but it depends on the terrain, it depends on the people, it depends on the way they interact, the cultural factors. So, you know, people who aren't in high contact cultural environments are going to spread it a little bit differently to ones who are. People in urban environments and densely populated areas are going to be spreading it differently because you also have to consider infrastructure, you know, your your roads, your air conditioning, the way that people handle all these other aspects of living living in urban environments and you know it's all about the context and you can't apply one to everywhere else it's just not going to work 
So now you've got me really excited when you mentioned the word context because this has, you know, been <laughs> something that I've been orbiting over the last um, couple of years. And um, let me tell you a little bit more about, yeah. you know, that journey. Um, and so, you know, this quest yeah. with understanding data and getting more and more data and, you know, we're, we're now getting to the point where big data is not a thing anymore. It used to be a thing like 15 years ago. Uh, now everyone kind of takes it for granted that you know, there's all yeah. this big big data and everyone's um, going to be able to model um, everything to to perfection. But <laughs> what's been interesting from my, you know, um, some of my work has been understanding what that data actually means, um, not just from a insights perspective, so from a, you know, what does this data tell us about a certain problem that we're trying to solve, but what exactly is the data? So you know, and um, it's almost yeah. like I had to come full circle back to being the child that I was when I was interested in data and nature. And it's like, okay, measurement was a really cool thing, right? Like, um, you know, you get out your ruler and your angles and you measure things. And for the most part, everyone in the room kind of agreed that a right angle was a right angle. And there wasn't, you know, too much disagreement mm. about that. But when it came to things like yeah. how people feel about um you know, a certain political event or um, an incident mm -hmm. that had happened, people's views started, like, continually change. Um, and it's not just that there's different, yes. um, different points of opinion. It's also that the same person can change their opinion over time. And so, you know, having an understanding yes. about what exactly is data um, then got mm -hmm. me thinking about what is objectivity versus subjectivity because they're both types of information right yes so we have objective information right. information that i would argue has less variability so things like okay what's the temperature today you know um most of us would kind of agree that the temperature yep. right now is whatever it is but other questions may not be um may not be something that we all kind of agree on and that information one would argue again you know by definition it's more subjective so um here we have two different types of information um, and it's not just two there's various degrees of subjectivity and objectivity and how do we think about that when we use that kind of data in models you know um, what happens to that information mm -hmm. is that data alive um, and, and by alive what i mean by that is you know we could think about data that's um, about societal attitudes to women for example back, you know, in the 1940s and 50s and use that data to train, mm -hmm. you know, AI algorithms. But, but if we then apply those models to today, um, you can see that that context yes. piece is missing, right? So it's like, how, much, how mm -hmm. much weight do we put on that information? And we, you know, when we model, we talk about weighting different parameters differently. But the big thing for me around all of this is, you know, understanding the context and the various you know, various number of contexts that come into play when it comes to data, because data is like, yes. um, it's decontextualized information. It's information that, you know, we have, mm. we have gathered um, by virtue of measurement, right? Yes. So we've chosen to measure a particular attribute. Yes. And it, it's true at that point in time. <laughs> and, you know, once it's taken out of that context, yeah, it, it doesn't grow. It doesn't give you more information about what has happened in that period 
to the various data points that you've collected. Yeah, exactly. And um, and the other piece around that, you know, which yeah. I find fascinating, is the ecosystem around that data. So everyone's kind of heard, you mm -hmm. know, um, the phrase "data is is the new oil." That's that's one that's been peddled around yes. quite frequently. But I love the idea of thinking about data as an apple, you know, an apple that you have harvested from an ecosystem and a context. But the apple isn't the tree. And the apple has interdependencies. Yep. Um, you know, that data depends, the apple around that data depends on the soil around that tree, the birds that have been, you know, um, that have sort of pecked away at that, that particular apple and how that apple has been influenced by the ecosystem around it. And so that is the missing information, right? That we haven't collected um, mm -hmm. when we harvest data or when we, you know, point in time or, or place measure information um, about something. Yes. I'd even go so far as to say that even the way we anchor data to a thing is really fascinating. So um, concrete example, I was reading this really interesting article by Chris Hildry around homelessness. So he did this um, really mm -hmm. interesting piece of work where um, what they found was that homeless people weren't able to get their social benefits because they had no address. Um, and so this mm -hmm. concept that, you know, for someone who is a person to get um, a subsidy or some kind of uh, monetary benefit required a third, you know, an address, an address as being, you know, an, a, a, a piece of yeah. information or data, not about the person, but about where the person resides. And so what we've done is we've anchored the payment yes to data that's connected to an address, not a person. So, you know, how do we, when we think mm -hmm. about data and how that data is anchored to whether it be a person or um, a thing, um, how are we anchoring data and what are the implications around that? Yes, absolutely. It's, there are so many of these systems that make so many assumptions about an individual situation and they aren't always in concert with what they're trying to connect the data for. You could even look at it from an ethics perspective, right? So one of the examples that I've yes. been playing with is this idea that um, when we have data around, say, uh, let me give you an example, workplace injuries and incidents, mm -hmm. um, yes. that injury is usually attributed um, to the individual that has experienced that injury, right? And so mm -hmm. if you look at um, a situation where you're doing some modeling around, you know, um, behaviors of employees and which employees are more likely to leave an organization or stay in, stay within an organization, one of the metrics you collect um, is specific to injuries in the workplace. One could argue mm -hmm. that um, if the modeling shows that people with injuries in the workplace are more likely to leave, that then brings on a whole you know, range of ethical questions around Will employers terminate yes. their employment um, prior to you know prior to them? Yes. Um, recover, like, how do we deal with those really tricky situations? Now, if we think about anchoring mm. in a different way, and you know, I'd love to, you know, actually do some work around this if, in my copious amounts of spare time. Um, if we actually <laughs> anchored that um, that injury to the place at which it happened, 
So it could be that, you know, it's not the individual yes. as much as it is a particular setup or room um, within an organization that is mm. more prone to these incidents happening. And of course, you know, that can be picked up. Um, yes. But but then we, we can sidestep the ethical issues around, you know, having these individuals disclose information that could potentially harm their own careers. Um, so how yeah. do we address issues in the workplace without, you know, by anchoring data differently so that we can sidestep some of those ethical issues rather than mitigate them down the track? Yeah, and add a little bit more objectivity to the data. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, um, yeah. you know, this kind of thinking about different ways of anchoring information is something that I think we don't do enough of. Um, and partly because, look, mm. you know, a lot of people are just um, wanting to create models that predict things that are able to um, you know, deliver certain outcomes. And so we don't pay enough attention, yes. in my opinion, to uh, not just the quality of the data, because uh, that's a separate issue, but how we um, mm. recontextualize that information and you know do some checks and balances around whether we're anchoring the data appropriately. Um, I once got into a really interesting discussion, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this too, Michelle, around with a friend <laughs> around. Um, and this was this was a story. Um, yeah. A particular local government, and not mentioning any names, collected a whole um, a whole lot of data on homelessness, again, homeless people, um, mm -hmm. and a whole bunch of other metrics. And they found these people um, housing that they thought was suitable. Um, and, you know, for some reason, a lot of them accepted housing that was offered, but there was there were some individuals that didn't. And so the understanding, you know, and, and the general sentiment around that was these people being a bit difficult. Um, why aren't they accepting, um, you know, that accommodation? There should be no logical reason why um, why they wouldn't get out of that situation. And what they found you know, mm -hmm. when they started speaking to the social workers on the ground was that these particular individuals had pets and their pets for them were like family because they were often um, estranged from their actual families. And the housing yes. that was offered to them did not allow for pets. So, so these individuals mm. would rather be homeless um, with their pets than accept housing yes. um, that was made available to them that didn't allow for pets. Now, um, you mm. know, one could argue that having that, un, you know, that sort of tacit understanding of the situation could have produced a better model. Uh, but if you were model focused, you mm. would say, well, had you had a metric that was focused on whether or not the individual had pets, you would have picked up. Um, you know, that as being a parameter in, in the actual modeling. And so, you know, we kind yeah. of come into this chicken and egg situation, which is um, how much of the situation can be explained by data, but how much of it could be explained yes. um, even before we start the modeling process by actually understanding um, the knowledge, you know, the knowledge pieces around that. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, there's a... And it's a project management meme that goes around every now and then. It's used a lot in technology and it's called the tire swing problem. So I'm not sure if you heard about no, it. No, I'd love to um, hear more. The, so it's usually a series of cartoons and it talks about, you know, what the marketing person wants. And there's this fantastic, you know, 
uh, theme park with a tie swing involved, but you know, it's very detailed, very over the top, provides so many bells and whistles. And then it's like, okay, so the engineer designs it a different way, but you know, it's impractical, but fulfills the requirements to the letter. And, you know, it goes through all these different types of roles of people coming up with what they think the solution is supposed to be. And all that was actually needed was a rope attached to a tire attached to a tree. And that was it because that's what the customer wanted and that's what, that's what they needed. So it's, you know, people make all these assumptions like, this is a problem we have to solve. This is what I think it's going to be, but there's no, you know, systems gathering or systems understanding. There's no understanding about the actual requirements about the people, the end users or whoever it is who needs to use the product or the facility at the end. And, you know, it's people taking their own assumptions, their own biases and applying it to situations for people who are not in the same circumstance that they're in at all and not understanding any of it. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's one of those quirky things where people, you know, just, you don't communicate, you don't understand the system and you don't, um, you don't have the context for the way that you want your solution to be designed. Yeah, and um, so, so the thing that comes to mind with, with that story is this idea of human in the loop when it comes to, you know, designing yeah. systems. Um, so mm. my, my view on this has been that we don't want the human in the loop. We want, we want the human all the, all the way, right, as, part, as, as an equal partner to technology. Yeah. So it's not that, you know, tech does mm -hmm. its piece and then we, we go to the human and now we go back to tech. Um, it's, it's bigger than that. It's about embedding... You know, it's almost like finding the right synergy between the way humans think, um, which may not be completely rational, <laughs> and, um, you know, having the technology <laughs> sort of really, um, you know, complement that piece. And I know we've, you know, there have been many people talking about, you know, how are humans going to work better, better with technology? Will technology take over um, mm -hmm. the tasks that humans do in every aspect of what we're able to produce um, yeah. And so that's, you know, that's an interesting um, discussion in and of itself. Um, but one of the things, mm. you know, one of the, um, so, so in, in, on my journey, um, I came across the work of Nora Bateson, um, who's the president of the International Bateson Institute, and her father did a lot of work as well, um, Gregory Bateson, who was an anthropologist, um, around understanding natural living systems. And so what was fascinating for me was that, you know, I had like made a choice and gone down this modeling physics kind of path and, you know, completely ignored um, that natural living system, that biology, the understanding, you know, in terms of the interrelationships of how we um, depend on each other, our um, environment and how the systems around us shape us. And so Nora yes. talks about, has this concept which she calls um, warm data, which is, in my understanding, um, information across many contexts. So it's, it's what she calls transcontextual. Um, the apple on the tree, you know, has a nutritional context, but it also has um, a monetary context in terms of the pricing around it. So having an understanding, you know, of not just the individual context around that information but how these contexts then start interacting with one another um, that is that transcontextual piece that I think you know 
can't be measured because there's so many different yes. takes on that. Um, and so Absolutely. part of my work has been understanding the role that warm data plays um, alongside the cold data, what I call cold data, meaning information that's a lot more objective as opposed to cold data, which is something that is more subjective. Um, you know, I could hear, um, like, if I, if I went out in the garden and I got a couple of flowers, um, you could say, okay, those are a bunch of flowers. They're yellow, they're sunflowers. Um, you know, they were planted at this time, at this date. What other information can you possibly get? But what might not be obvious um, to anyone else would be, you know, I had a connection with my grandmother who loved um, gardening. And so for me, that represents nurture. It represents um, connection to family. And so, you know, as humans, I wonder, you know, we all come together um, bringing our own pieces of information to contextualize what we're seeing um, in the world around us. And, um, yes, you know, how do we, what, what are we bringing to the objective, the objective data that's in front of us that is then goes on to shape our decision making um, and how do we then yes. create the right conditions for us to start understanding one another because we're acknowledging the subjective information in the world so often you know when it comes to modeling and it comes to analytics we tend to put the subjective aside and and we do that for a really legitimate reason and that is it it's not yes. um, verified it can't be tested right like if i did an experiment like i did at school where i took a ball to the top floor and i dropped it i can actually time it and you know objectively we could all come up with what the gravitational con constant is going to be like but if you give me something subjective it's like well why would we bother do, do that because we can't keep testing that and verify and the whole point of science is to build right yeah. so if we all come to an agreement on yes, something to to that then forms the foundation yeah. for the next thing um and so in doing yes. that that gives us confidence because we're like well you know we've verified that we've proved this and we've taken it to the next level and the next level but by ignoring the subjective because it's just all too hard and you know uncomfortable and we don't want to deal with that we're actually throwing out information really valuable information that we, we need for the actual problem we are and because you you have to collect all this information it's a lot of it and you know big data gets bigger once you add all of this warm data to it and you know at what point do you say this is enough warm data for us to provide what we need to you know develop our solution because you don't know at what point the data points become too loose for the model you're trying to develop because it's subjective. Like with the dogs for developing the houses, like did you know that you should have collected information about their other relationships or, you know, their other uh, behaviors or habits that might prevent them from taking up that offer? At what point do you say this information is no longer relevant? Yeah, and you know, big questions there, right? Like, um, what we're talking <laughs> about essentially is the viability of data. How viable is this data set to solve this problem? And who could potentially answer that question? So, you know, in the world that I studied in, in you know, if we talk about even you know, the mechanics and of physics, um, that data is fairly un unchanging. Like, it, it won't really change over time. And gravitational constants kind of the same. Um, but if you talk about political sentiment. 
that has a whole range of different contexts to it. There's the health context and yes. you know the um, the workplace context. Um, there is the economic context and the environmental context. So all these factors are sort of shaping the way we see the world. We all see the world quite differently. Um, and I think it's also about understanding how other contexts that may not seem relevant at first glance can actually impact areas like ec economics, um, health, and so forth. You know, um, we've all kind of, and, and still are at living through this pandemic. And, you know, the biggest things have been how a health, something that's, you know, a shock in the health sector has impacted the economic sector, has impacted the family, um, people's family arrangements and their work from home arrangements. So it's like having these shocks in one context has implications for a whole range of other contexts. Um, one example that I'm, I'm currently sort of, you know, just tossing and trying to understand better has been um, looking at this idea and, you know, particularly with open source software, um, how did open source software become so big? And the reason, you know, if you look at um, how it all started, and I'm sure you already know the story, was that you know, someone wanted access to code that was not available, and so they decided to do it themselves. But the way they were able to get open source to really grow um, was to use the legal context by creating a copyleft license, right? So for me, uh, what's so fascinating yes. about this is that a problem that was identified um, in an economic context and a productivity context was able to be solved from a legal context by being really clever about the way um, you know, certain licenses were created around that software to enable it to grow rather than um, you know, kept, um, kept only to certain individuals. So um, how do we then try and look at the problems we have today and the data that we have today from different contexts because that could be where yes. the solution is. <laughs> Absolutely. And you're seeing that there's so many other perspectives, so many other views, so many other contexts informing other fields, other areas, other you know industries these days because they're able to approach it in a way that hasn't previously been done. It gives you, you know, Looking, it's literally looking outside the box to find alternative ways to solve problems. And, you know, people, it, it's great to see that people are starting to apply more of these open source principles and trying to figure out similar avenues, if not, you, know, you can't use identical ones, but similar avenues to approach things from the side. And yeah, but it, it again, creates other issues, other social, economic, and you know, it ripples out to create all these other impacts yeah, and um, and so I think you know from a tech perspective, what I find really curious is that you know we often think about building these models or technologies, and then trying to understand the impacts that will you know that will then roll out from these technologies, which is great. Um, yeah. But <laughs> why don't we start thinking about it from an ecosystem perspective? Why don't we start thinking about yeah. how the technologies we build are influenced by the environment and the context that we already have? So, you know, why don't we start mm -hmm. thinking about information that's flowing in both directions? So it's not just we build X and here's the impact from that. Um, 
why don't we ask the question, how do we build X in the context of all these other pieces, right? In the context of environment, in the, co yes. in the context of health. How do we think about building technologies, not necessarily um, to solve problems, which it's great at doing, but how do we even design the tech in a way that's informed by these other pieces that come together? Yes. And, you know, that's you know, leading us into the way that we use AI, right? Because a lot of it is we use AI to build these models, to create these systems, to solve these problems, to predict these behaviors. But again, it's without the context and we need to be able to think, okay, well, we need to design it backwards. So we need to see the social impact, the economic impact, and kind of work backwards from that to try and give it a more holistic view. Absolutely. And how does the, um, you know, how does, how does the systems, because ultimately the systems and, and the blueprint, I kind of call it the blueprint of the, of the systems exist in the data. Right. So if there is inequality, mm. it shows up in the data and it's embedded in the data, which is yes. which is why we have these biases and these issues. And and so, again, we get into this chicken and egg thing, which is, OK, it's not you know, it's not the algorithms. That's the problem. It's society. That's the issue. So that's got to be fixed before, <laughs> um, you know, we can sort out better um, outcomes for these algorithms. But even understanding that actually it's, it's not backwards one and the way. others, right? It's 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 how do how do we yeah. think of them as a system, um, mm. where we're not just you know fixing individual fragments of that system, but we're we're considering the system as a whole. Um, one of the one of the pieces of work that um, I was really interested in. Um, was about how you design for more robust systems um, and, and more resilient systems. And there's um, been you know, a bit of work and research done um, that suggests that if you design systems for the vulnerable, that is actually the most resilient system because the system has give and flexibility within it to accommodate not just the vulnerable, mm -hmm. but external shocks in you know, that might affect the people who are not vulnerable today. Um, rather yes. than let's design a system and then slap onto the end of that something that, you know, allows the vulnerable to use it or people. Uh, so it's not retrofitting this, um, you know, to make things more equitable. It's about how you design it in the first mm. place, not just from a moral perspective that, you know, it's the right thing to do, but understanding that that's actually the more resilient solution in all of this. How do we create, it is. you know, build in, um, build in technologies that are more resilient by virtue of them being mm. um, able to adapt more quickly? Absolutely. And if you're able to catch the usual, you know, segment that falls through the gaps, you're by nature going to be able to catch everyone else along the way yeah yeah it's such a yeah. it's it's sort of you know you really need to think about it right like it's um you know yeah. it's, it's having that understanding that building systems that accommodate the vulnerable is actually beneficial for us because we don't know what's mm. coming ahead and what the shocks are um, so how do we build and design yes. more inclusive technologies, not just because it's the right thing to do, but it's actually the more resilient and more robust um, 
you know, way forward. Little segue. So we, you know, we're talking at, at some point, we're um, learning a bit more about the food bank and the systems around the food bank and the services they offer. And they want, they made the point to express that people aren't always in situations where they are vulnerable, but sometimes they have periods where they are vulnerable and you need to be able to support those people as well, because they might not be consistently in that environment, but they still equally need the support because as you said, they, they're shocks. Sometimes people fall in rough times and they know it's not going to be a permanent situation. You know, you, you need to give them the support as well to be able to get back on their feet. And you know, that's why we need to develop the systems to support the vulnerable, to support the people who might fall into those gaps from time to time. Yeah. yeah. Gosh, that's a big one. <laughs> it is a big one. And it's still, you know, all of it is about systems development to support our society in different ways. And so it might be infrastructure related, it might be tech related, it might, you know, be, you know, anything, but it's still part of a wider system with multiple moving parts. Yeah. And, and you know, I think, um, and this is sort of taking that idea and bringing that context piece back into it, which is understanding how mm. designing systems is very contextual. Um, and, and that may sound mm. obvious, but, you know, when we think about AI and how it's deployed, um, you know, we talked about this example where if you had training data um, around women's around societal attitudes to women back in the 1950s and applied them today may not be the best model to use um, but you know we don't think too deeply around whether we use um, data that's trained in say western countries that then gets deployed to um, you know mm. Africa or India um, what does that mean in terms of the outcomes for those kinds of people? Um, and, and we're not even going into the race, yeah. you know, algorithms that are trained based on different races. And so having an understanding, not just about the data that's being used for training, but um, from a, you know, rigorous, if you want to talk about model rigor, like from a rigorous perspective, um, you know, how viable is that data? So we're going back to not just data quality, in terms of measurement, but the viability mm. of data, is that data viable to solve, you know, a, a problem that has a completely different context? Um, and where is the threshold? Yeah. So, you know, at what point does the data go from being useful as a predictor um, for a model to, um, to then being rubbish, right? And, and what about that gray area yes. in between where we're not mm. quite so sure um, whether that's an appropriate, um, it, it is appropriate to use this technology. So I think, you know, the, I'm not anti-AI because I love data and I love models, but I think we need to spend more time thinking about when it is appropriate to be using models and when it isn't appropriate to use them um, and finding yes. the right balance in that. And just because we have a hammer, it doesn't mean, you know, everything's a nail. Things are nail. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, as we said, like the circumstances that we apply, the context that we apply these AI algorithms to are also constantly changing. So, you know, the algorithm also needs to adapt. You know, the way that P 
people literally physically move around the globe, the globalization context, the fact that, you know, different parts of local environments have different cultural um, divisions, you know, just because people like, you know, hang around their own people because it's just, you know, commonality and finding, um, I guess, yeah, common grounds. So, you know, it's, yeah, having to make sure that these algorithms account for the fact that people are people and do peoply things. <laughs> and having the complexity that, you know, people often bring. Um, when we talk about different contexts, you know, I often, one of the things that I've often sort of run into is this idea that we need to make things simple for people to understand. Mm. And it's something that I used to buy into until I really started studying um, complexity. And I no longer, you know, <laughs> I no longer subscribe to that view. Um, let me give you an example. I yeah. think that, um, mm. you know, we've come to a, a situation right now in the political environment where slogans, you know, political slogans are very simplified. And when they become really simplified, yes. what we're seeing is that there's a lot more polarization in public opinion. And I, you know, I kind of feel... By oversimplifying. Yeah. And I kind of feel that's because we've stripped out that context. We've decontextualized these really, um, you know, important and complex issues into something that people find really hard to make sense of. Um, and so, you know, you could you could simplify um, political campaign slogans so that people get a sense of what's going on. But what you're essentially doing is you're robbing them of the um, ability to make sense of that situation for themselves by taking away, and we've, we've spoken about information and, mm. you know, information that can be collected, that can't be collected, like wrong data, um, information around context, which is missing from um from you know AI, for example, but even in in discussions, you know when we strip out context from information, um, what we're left with is less avenues by which people can start joining the dots because there's not that many dots to join anymore, um, and so their own sense making yeah. as being part of that process um, is severely hindered by us not providing that context. So. You know, my view is rather than us running away from complexity, we need to embrace complexity. We need to start thinking mm. about, um, you know, issues in their gory complexity, which is part of the wild, right? Understanding that, um, for example, yes. migration um, is also a work issue, is also a family issue, has, you know, all these different layers and contexts around that. Um, and so that, you know, mm -hmm. people then have the have the choice um, because they're given that information to make sense for themselves rather than you know governments yes. and I'm not saying governments are doing that but rather than this thinking that we need to simplify things so that people understand things that are complex yeah and yeah because you you take away those layers that would help provide the information they need to be more informed and you end up with a lot more arguments online. But how how do we go about trying to solve that problem now that we're this far down the rabbit hole? I don't know if we can solve that problem, Michelle. Um, <laughs> look, I, I, I feel like um, 
so so here's a little bit of a project. I'll tell you a little bit about a project I did with the national, um, the Canadian National Energy Regulator, and that was around um, you know understanding citizen engagement, civic engagement on digital platforms. Um, and what we found was you know when we spoke to citizens and said, hey, can you tell us what you think about these really important political issues online? A lot of them would say, we're not really, you know, not really interested. We've got so many other things to do. We don't have the time to talk to government. Um, but That's then your they job. would, yeah. <laughs> but then they'd go online and have conversations on platforms that, um, you know, were very much what government wanted to engage on. And so the question then is, you know, we've got a disengagement with government around these issues. Um, and Conversations are now being polarized and shaped in ways that, you know, governments had no idea um, were going to happen. And before you know it, you've got an issue that government has to deal with. So um, we did a bit of research um, two years ago and we presented it in New York. And that was around, you know, what are the conditions that are required for citizens to engage with government online? And how do we create, again, we kind mm -hmm. of took an ecosystem approach. How do we create the right conditions um, so that people can have a constructive conversation about a, a really um, a tricky, tricky issue? So it could be something like putting energy pipelines in certain areas. How do we get, you know, how do we have a, um, a dialogue that's somewhat constructive in, in the public domain? What are the, you know, what are the pieces needed for this? Um, and it was fascinating because the research suggests that, you know, people need to feel empowered. Um, and that means mm -hmm. um, the ability to be able to have a voice. So they don't necessarily always want a voice. Sometimes people are okay with just knowing that if they wanted to say something, they could. So, yes. you know, having silence is okay, um, but still providing people the opportunity to reach out and for people to mm -hmm. really know that they're being heard. Again, doesn't mean that government has to necessarily agree with everything that everyone says and people get that you know people understand the research shows that people don't mind if government um, makes a decision that goes against what they've said so long as they feel that it's been properly considered um, and you know and that they've yes. really been listened to and so how do we um, mm. you know rethink this idea of consensus and how we achieve consensus is consensus everybody agreeing to a particular viewpoint? Because that's never going to happen. Um, no. And and so what exactly then is consensus? Is it the process by which an agreement is reached rather than an outcome? Um, and, you know, um, also understanding that consensus means that there may be other points of consensus. Um, so it's not consensus about a particular issue A, we might find that you know issue C, D, and E um, have a general consensus, and then how do we build from that? So um, you know some really interesting work that was being done um, by the Taiwanese government um, around you know how do they how do how do they find places where um, the public do have consensus and build from that? And they've been using machine learning to find to identify those points of consensus. So, you know, really flipping the problem on its yes. head and saying, we're not just looking for consensus on issue A, but we've presented the issue in its complexity and we're allowing the system 
to start um, or, or we're allowing points of consensus to start emerging from this system and how do we then work with that yes so you know a really um a really different approach right it is and it it's great because it, uh, i saw the article you wrote about that system and how you know if you can find the points of consensus even if it's not the issue you're talking about you can still figure out what's important to people and you can still figure out you know where their actual concerns are and it it will eliminate the noise of all the other stuff which end up being po too polarizing to be able to reach a consensus yeah exactly exactly i couldn't have, i couldn't have said it better yeah. myself um and <laughs> i think um i think one in you know one piece in all of this and and certainly one that i think a lot of our indigenous people really understand um is this idea um, which I, you know, which in the literature has been referred to as deliberation, which is a space that's created. Again, it's like creating the conditions for people to start making sense and processing information um, so that they are able to join the dots. Um, so if you present, you know, a group, a community with a particular policy problem, um, the way they respond to that problem at the time you present it to them it's quite different to the way they, they respond, you know, two weeks um, from that, once you've given them the information and the data and um, yes. the context around that. And so even, you know, having, having spaces, whether it's a virtual space or a physical space, where people can have the time and space to start making sense of information is just so important, particularly now when we've got, you know, mm. um, the digital world where everything kind of happens almost instantly when we're, we're almost deprived of that yes. space needed to make sense of information mm, we are and yeah it's the way that the system is set up because everything's the short form we don't do long form anymore and you know because it's short form people are overly concise and when you're overly concise you know you lose nuance when you lose nuance people start getting defensive if what you've said contradicts what they feel. And then, you know, you, you just lead to arguments and people being more emotional than objective about the information that they are reading. Yeah. And so I love, I love what you've said because, and, and that's, you know, pretty much what the research suggests, which is if you take away context around that, which is nuance to some degree, you're missing information and that creates um, you know, more misunderstandings and more tension in conversations. I think, I think what's really, you know, what's really important as well is understanding that that emotional subjective piece is also just as valuable as that rational, you know, objective piece. Um, the problem yes. is we just don't know how to use that. Um, in conjunction with that objective <laughs> and and rational piece but it doesn't mean that it's not yes. important it doesn't mean that someone mm -hmm. being subjective um that that information is any less valuable than the objective information that's right <laughs> because you know it, it comes from a place where it does mean something to them it's the tone the way it hits the audience that may not actually be conducive to further discourse. And so how do we work with that, right? Like, um, so it's, it's almost like <laughs> there's, this, there's this source of information 
which um, so Nora calls it warm data, and you know she runs these labs called Warm Data Labs, so people start working with with you know warm data. Um, how yeah. do we start working with warm data in a way to gather the insights that can be gleaned from that data, and then use those insights alongside our models and our cold data to produce a more considered um, you know, ecosystem kind of approach. Yes. Well, that's a question, right? <laughs> There's so many ways that we could approach it. But again, context, everything comes back down to context and how we can apply it or how we should apply it and where we should apply it. And I think it's needed now more than ever. It's almost like, um, you know, we are just plowing ahead with AI and the cold data and the models, but that counterbalance, which is that warm data piece is missing. And so, um, you know, mm. there's, there's a part of me that thinks, look, at least when we had models that were simpler um, and we didn't have as much information, we kind of got to consider the other side, right? We kind of got to say, well, <laughs> you know, there's that human factor and see, you know, there's the stuff that we weren't able to gather, there were limitations still of models, there's a whole bunch of assumptions that yes. we've used. Um, but but now that things have gotten so much more precise and models have gotten so much more sophisticated, um, I think it's even more important now to pay attention to that mm. subjective, that, you know, that warm data piece because we could just be yes. going completely off, off, um, off the rails. And, you know, even when we build our models, um, you get to pick your assumptions, you know, you get to pick the, the premise of and the scope of that model and, you know, when that model applies and doesn't apply. So it's almost like, um, you know, designing this, this engine that only you can drive and a few select people because you know that if you picked an assumption that was a bit too far, the model would crash or, um, and so, you know, <laughs> even going to informing, informing those assumptions and informing those limitations and that judgment piece, there's so much to be gained from that subjective warm data, that consultation, that, you know, speaking to that social um, service worker to get an idea from a data science perspective of how does that warm data, um, how does that inform the assumptions of my model, help me better understand the limitations yes. of my model. Help me understand when when using this model is just not going to be appropriate, um, because yes. you know, because I now have a better understanding of of the context around that. Exactly, but then again, how do you avoid imposing your own prejudices, your own bias, and your own background into the model, and inadvertently skewing or adjusting the situation around which it can work yeah but also being aware of that right like um are we doing it anyway but <laughs> just don't have the awareness that that's actually what we are doing when we build models and design yes. models um so one of the one of the you know um one of the things i really loved about warm data labs was that they happen within groups of people and we you know from a tech perspective we understand that, you know, you stack a whole bunch of CPUs together, you get this massive supercomputer and we're sort of harnessing the power of technology and taking it to the next level. We haven't figured out how to do that with humans yet. 
And so, and I don't mean this in a, you know, um, a sci-fi kind of, you know, um, sci-fi kind of way. I mean, in terms of. Plug them in, Matrix. Yeah. (laughs) I I don't quite mean it that way. I mean it more in terms of how, (laughs) how do we think about knowledge systems within humans and Indigenous people do this well. Um, And Mm. thinking about what collective knowledge means to people so that when we're building a model, we're not putting an individual, we're not necessarily putting in an individual's assumptions, but it's almost done by the collective in a way that is able to tap into the the collective warm data. And so even this idea Mm. of human in the loop is about a singular human or you know, um, individuals, but we're missing that community piece in this. And again, this isn't just about consultation. It's about how do we, how do we really gather the wisdom of communities, whether it's local communities, um, and use that information to help build these models, rather than having a singular yes. developer or just you know. Let's contract out an, an ethicist to come in and help us um, <laughs> mitigate some of these harms, which I often, you know, cringe at because I feel like um, mitigating is always something that you do after the damage has been done, not before. Yes. Um, so, yep. you know, how do, we, how do we think about better, better leveraging collective human intelligence? You need the community engagement to be able to create systems to provide better community engagement. It's, again, chicken and egg. (laughs) (laughs) So this entire conversation has just been one, you know, one, a whole range of concentric circles, right? (laughs) Objectivity, subjectivity, chickens and eggs. Yes. it's, It's not like humans are exactly an easy problem to solve. (laughs) <laughs> no but um but i i kind of help wonder whether it's you know our view that it is something to solve right it's almost mm. like um going into uh, going for a walk in in a wild you know bush for a wild bush walk for example and seeing nature you know, yeah. um, not in that orderly way that we expect everything <laughs> to be but in a way yeah that has dependencies that we aren't able Mm. to to understand as being important so we might think hey i'll just you know bring some foxes to australia and um it'll all be good um and it isn't because (laughs) because of all you know the interdependencies and i can't help but wonder whether we do the same thing to data whether we um, mm. you know, in, in our quest to, to get to those insights and to get to solving those problems, we're so far deep into that, that we're not taking that step back and actually looking at that information yeah. and seeing what is viable and what isn't and where, where has that information, um, you know, how are we taking bits of information out of context, the foxes, and putting them into you know, putting that data into an environment that it's not suited to. Yes, absolutely. It's, hmm. 
there's so much there about the way that we do approach things. Like we've been talking about solving the problems, but society isn't solvable. Like that's not the way it should technically be approached. Humanity and the way that, you know, we interact with each other isn't something that should be solved per se in the way that we do in a very scientific technical way just because you know that's not what we are we are not the issue <laughs> and we are as well right it's that paradox yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> where, where yes. does the issue Complete begin paradox. and the human end <laughs> yes yeah. that's right oh, very interesting very deep conversations and very deep issues that we do need to address and yeah I like the fact that you know there's so many people trying to approach it in these different ways and you know trying to you know make sense of more of the way that our systems and our societies work it's great yeah and so I think um you know I I often I guess I would love to see a world where our technology was designed keeping in mind the other contexts around, you know, uh, not just the data, but even the environmental context and understanding, um, you know, the political context, the ecological context. How do, how do all these pieces go to even help, like, designing our models? Um, how do we anchor yeah. data? Um, you know, how do, how do all these pieces come together? So it very much is, in my mind, it would be like a co-evolution of technology alongside nature, mm. because tech is kind of like nature. I mean, it's made of, you know, uh, it's it's part of nature. And so, how do we um, not create that separation between the map and that territory, but understand that? Mm. It is all, you know, it, there is all these interdependencies between. I think a lot of the ways that we do approach things these days are starting to take these things into account. But, you know, it's slow progress because, again, it's starting to, it's having to change the way that we approach the problems from conventional thought processes to, you know, trying to adopt all these other ways of thinking. And, you know, just our conversation talking about the interdependencies, about the ecosystems and the fact that these are living systems makes me think of, you know, talking to engineers who are working in international development because, you know, they might be working on a specific thing, like in this particular case, you know, water sanitation and health. So you're talking about, you know, your public health infrastructure. But when you're talking about public health infrastructure, you also need to consider, you know, the local development, the you know, in particular, uh, women's menstrual cycles and toileting behaviours and how that impacts the local economy and, you know, education level and education level leads to more economic outcomes. And all of these are interrelated. So you, uh, we went into a conversation going into talking about public plumbing and started talking about development and women and women's empowerment and trying to help communities have industries that can be sustained when you come in and do all these other things for developing their urban environment. Yeah, it's lots of moving parts. <laughs> yeah, but exciting, right? And um, 
And I think that's part it of the, the beauty, beauty of um, looking at a, an issue like that because you've suddenly discovered how rich it is in context and how um, yes. it's not, you know, we're not, you're not going to be solving it in a series of um, specific interventions. It has to, you have to have that collective kind of ecosystem approach. That's right. Yeah. So many things to consider and so many exciting ways to approach them. <laughs> Shall we talk a little bit more about, um, you know, warm data and um, a bit more around how, you know, how those labs really um, help people make sense of an issue through different perspectives? And how that shift in perception um, allows them to view the world differently, which then means that they meet different, um, different societal issues and policy issues differently too. Um, and so, yes. you know, that piece, that is the warm data that I find quite interesting in terms of working, you know, with, with that cold data and um, how do we sort of, have that consultation piece, which is again, consultation feels like it's very removed from that piece, right? Um, it is. It feels a little bit too objective. It feels a little bit too objective. So, how do we sort of, you know, intertwine <laughs> these two um, so that it is one piece that we're looking at, a big one? Yeah. So, how how do the warm data labs kind of approach that? So, with the warm data labs, you know. Um, it's it's not like there's a facilitator. Um, it's very much um, about creating the right conditions for people by presenting the different contexts for them to start making sense of the world around them. Um, one of the you know one of the pieces of work that I did was around thinking about human emotion um, because that's a big mm -hmm. piece around you know there's a lot of AI at the moment looking at how do we identify um, human behavior based on their facial disposition or what does that say about the emotions? And then how can we use um, facial recognition technologies to decide? And, and there are, you know, there are um, applications out there whether or not an individual is a suitable candidate for a job, right? So again, very mm. controversial um, huge yes. you know, a huge ethical issue around that um and you know questions to be asked absolutely behind how does someone um how does someone how do we even know that these like the success rate around these algorithms and what is the viability of that data in terms of human emotion um how can mm. we then use a person's um you know characteristics and the way they present themselves at an interview to determine whether or not they will stay in a particular job or shift jobs. Um, yes. I, I think, again, you know, this is that warm data where warm data can be really helpful. It's about really understanding mm. that. So there's two pieces in this. One is, you know, understanding that everyone's emotions depend on, you know, this huge um, under the water ocean um, of what, they've gone through in their life experiences. 
And we can't just flatten yes. that down and you know have a reductionist approach in terms of, okay, that's what they look like, so they must be feeling like X. And um, that would mean they'd be a great employer when it comes to working with stakeholders. Um, so it's not, you know, it's not really that straightforward. <laughs> um, but but stepping out of that piece and understanding, okay, what's what's actually going on? What's going on is that there is a lot of data around um, on applications that people have to apply for jobs and organizations feel like they've been swapped with this information. So how do they go through and decide they run these algorithms across it? But understanding that, again, the solution to that problem may not come from within the employment context, but might actually come from um, you know, uh, an educational context or a context around um, you know, um, benefits or family. So having mm. bringing in those extra contextual pieces and saying, um, look, to employers, um, if you use that technology, here are, here are the downsides or here are the impacts um, that you may not have considered to your own organization because what you're essentially doing is hiring a certain type of individual and you could potentially be, yes. um, you know, stopping almost almost filtering out individuals who could be really creative or could be really innovative for those particular roles um, and again that's going you know beyond that moral um, inclusion and diversity piece it's very much talking to um, you know the mm. um, back to our initial thing about the resilience piece looking at that resilience in there yes exactly and you know, because the algorithm is designed to function in that specific way, you yeah, as you said, you end up hiring to type. And yeah, you're not allowing the case by case kind of assessment of the individual. And um, sort of related, unrelated. Um, a friend shared with me a neuroscientist who developed an app called the Hippo Camera to help people with Alzheimer's kind of reinforce memories that they're losing. So you record oh. an event and encourage them to play it back to try and reinforce the memory because that's the bit that's affected by Alzheimer's. But then I was thinking about uh, the way that we handle like the tech that's leading to compassionate tech and compassionate tech needs to have that context to, in order to be compassionate. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a woman who it's not compassionate tech in the way that I perceived it, but it's talking about compassion in tech and the way that we interact with our industry. And this would apply to all other technical industries as well. And the way that we approach being human to other people, because these fields are also not very compassionate because we are very technical. We are very yeah. clinical. We can be very cold and the way that we treat each other, the way we treat our users or our customers becomes very clinical because we treat them like data. Yeah. And yeah, so it's just talking about the way that we need to, mm. you know, be considerate of all those other factors as well. And warm data labs would help contribute yeah. to compassionate tech. Gosh, that's huge. Yeah. And 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 yeah, yeah I I've got goosebumps listening to you, honestly. Um <laughs> I could talk to you all night, honestly. It's just you you've, you've yes. hit the nail on the head. I think particularly when it comes to the hard sciences and you know, really um, technical fields, 
there's so much of our lives that is invested and in those particular paradigms that it becomes mm. difficult to see, to almost step away from that data and not have that tunnel vision yeah. and realise that those numbers mm. refer to these people um, who have yes. not been fed and are not just bums because they don't want to accept the housing, but there's a real issue there that we haven't got information about, yeah. like the pets. Um, so I think, um, yeah, I think to your point too, I think, and this is why I really wanted to step into this space was to bring that warm data piece. I, I liken it to muscles, like soft skills. People say, mm. oh, well, that's not called communication skills, soft skills anymore. Um, you know, they're just as yeah. valuable. And of course they are. But I don't have a problem with the word soft because if you look at the human physiology, for example, we've got a skeleton, but no one could deny yes. that the muscles and the tendons are important. It's like, yeah, good luck with your skeleton. <laughs> You're going to need the tissue and everything else. And that's soft. Um, but yeah. it, there isn't a judgment there that one is mm better than the other and one is preferable compared to the other yeah but when it comes it's to data and science and information there is a there's a, there's a judgment there about how we yeah. we view the hard sciences and you know i i really think it's about reproducibility and this mm. ideal we have as a community that if we can all agree to something that makes it better than if we disagree Yes. So if we all measure the temperature today and that's the temperature and we all agree with it, it's like, yes, that's the truth. Um, but it may not, but, you know, an incident is someone else's truth. And you said that beautifully in the yes. podcast, that it is real to that person. It has value to that person. Um, but it mm. doesn't mean that that information isn't valuable. In yes. So why do we do that? Why do we push that aside? And I think the only reason is convenience. It's because we don't know mm. how to process subjective data. We, we know how yes. to process objective data and build models, and we know how to build from that. But we don't know how to build from stuff that's subjective. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, I love it, talking to you, Michelle. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you too. Yeah. Thank you so much yes. for this. It's been such a treat, such a treat. Oh, it really has been. I've really enjoyed this. So, you know, if you want to have another chat, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we can do the wind-up part. Okay. So, uh, let's see. Soft, quest soft questions. So, you know, what hobby interest do you have that's most unrelated to your field of work? I say everything's interrelated and be a bit cheeky. Um, <laughs> I, I love, you know, I... Um, I have a newfound passion in cybernetics, but that's kind of related to yes. you know, my, my passion around better understanding data, AI, and data science. But it's about you know, really looking at nature and understanding information flows and how information yes. evolves and information is changed um, and how living systems respond to different types of stimuli and information. Because I think, mm -hmm. you know, if we are to better understand one another and understand our systems, um, and even understand you know, where AI is appropriate and isn't appropriate, we need to understand the information and the data that, that sort of um, underlies those models and the viability of that data. Yes. So I'm fascinated by information and how people make sense of the world how they process that information, what it means to them, 
um, but even how information is you know, propagandized, like where does that communication piece, how does that fit in with ideas around democracy and um, how does it shape the way we look at important issue, world issues as well? So cybernetics would be my, my, you know, my topic of choice. <laughs> Very philosophical, though, because it is, you know, a lot of the deeper questions about, you know, why we are the way we are. And you know, it's very interesting psychologically and anthropologically. It's, yeah, just because we are very complex beings and it's fascinating to see why, you know, one person responds a certain way under certain conditions. And, you know, I've, I've always had issues with um, psychometric testing because every question I want to say, well, it depends. <laughs> it all depends on the and context, it's, yeah. she says. <laughs> it is. It absolutely is. And so, you know, you, you, they tell you to do those MBTIs and all those other personality tests. It's like, well, yes, I'm more one way than another, but it does depend on the circumstances you're putting me in. And, you know, under certain situations, I will respond very differently. <laughs> and even coming back to that, um, with psychometric testing and all these standardized tests, there's a lot of bias in the way that they're standardized. And just looking at uh, standard literacy tests, for example, many of them, and I don't know if that's still the case now, but, you know, a while ago, a lot of the standardized tests were very dependent on idioms. And it's like, well, unless you grew up in a Commonwealth country and went through an English Commonwealth education, a lot of these idioms don't make any sense to you. And you'd have no basis for understanding why those idioms exist. So you will automatically fail that component of the test because your educational environment or your cultural environment doesn't match. And so you end up, again, passing to type as opposed yeah. to actually getting a formal assessment of whether someone is literate. So yeah. I find it fascinating. <laughs> I find your example fascinating because from a data perspective, you'd say, well, that was just, you know, that was bias. But that's bias we recognise, right? That you have identified. Yeah. What about the biases that we haven't yet identified? And, you mm. know, it's, it's one thing to say, look, this is the outcome that we want it's another thing to say that this is the outcome that we want that will solve the problem um, because often <laughs> the outcomes, so even if we get the outcomes that we're striving for and meet those targets, it doesn't mean that's the solution to the problem. No, it's not. Does it? No, you're, you're solving for criteria, but not actually achieving the effective solution. Is there anything in particular that, you know, fascinates you about something that you've researched so far in cybernetics? Um, I'm still going through Gregory Bateson's books. Um, the Mind and Nature is one that I'd highly recommend, and he's got such a really engaging conversational style. I um, highly recommend reading that one. Um, the other one I, I, you know, I love to read um, is a book by Kevin Kelly. It's... Um, called Out of Control. It's an old one, but it's it's one that I find fascinating again because he looks at this um, connection between machines and nature again. 
um, so yes. you're seeing a theme here, Michelle. It's like you know, I, I seem to <laughs> I seem to gravitate to that space in between nature and machines, and you know, I think yes. I still I, I think I might have been robbed as a child having to pick between those two paths. You know, whether I wanted to go down <laughs> the biology route or whether um, I wanted to choose Absolutely. physics. And so I feel like you know, I get a second chance to. Um, close that loop in a way by starting off from the physics yeah. side you know wandering into the public policy piece you know getting lost in the ai weeds and now you know <laughs> trying to come back to understanding better understanding nature yes and i mean it all started with physics where you were studying signals and communication anyway yeah. it's just a the different irony, medium right? <laughs> i know <laughs> absolutely full circle okay and which childhood book holds the strongest memories for you? Oh, I'm going to refrain from using fiction <laughs> because you know, there's a lot of books that I read as a child that I, I had to read and I didn't understand the wisdom um, until much later. But um, And I wouldn't say this is a childhood book, but I used to love, I used to have this book with science facts um, and, you know, I... I loved reading the marine biology section. I, if I wasn't going to be a physicist, I was going to be a marine biologist, except for the fact that I wasn't very good at swimming. Um, and so, you know, the choice was made. So I think um, I was very much a non-fictional reader. And um, it's interesting because I, I, I emphasize a lot to my son about the importance of the creative arts and understanding, you know, reading yes. poems and literature um because of that subjective piece because of you know having having understood the need to have that balance in the objective and subjective and having those you know bringing bringing mm. different perspectives to a problem um yeah it's so so gregory talks about gregory Bateson talks about this example and i dive you know i sort of um i'm sort of diverging here a little where he says, um, and I could be getting this wrong, but it's my interpretation of it. If you look at it, like if you if you close one eye and you see this image in front of you, which is through just one eye, and then you swap and open up the other eye, what you see are two different images. But when you when you look at an image through both your eyes, what you're now seeing is depth. And so yes. depth is is a dimension that wasn't present in either the right eye view or the left eye mm. view. But as a result of looking at both those views at the same time. So what we've yes. done is we've taken data set A and data set B. Think about your Venn diagram. But this <laughs> is kind of, you know, blows your mind because the information you now perceive with both your eyes is in neither, so the dimension aspect is in neither one nor the other, but as a result yes. of the two. Um, so yeah. it could just be That's you know, a wonderful me metaphor. Finding, finding this amazing. But when I read it, I was like, whoa, um, here is an idea, you know, here's an example of different contexts coming together to provide different dimensionality yeah. to information. Yeah, and it, it's literally providing different dimensionality. And it's such an 
It's such a brilliant metaphor to explain the concept of the need for context to provide depth. It's, it, yeah, it's beautifully illustrated, very elegant. Yeah. So I'd recommend read Gregory Bateson's Mind and Nature. <laughs> Probably not childhood. <laughs> Probably a bit advanced, but advanced reading. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it, it is it is about a, encouraging a wide range of reading to provide more perspective, more depth, and yeah. more richness in your understanding of the way things work. So it's wonderful. And lastly, what advice would you give someone who would like to do what you do, and what advice should they ignore? The advice I would give someone would be to dive into as many different things as possible. Um, so the big lesson I learned, I've been learning on my journey is that no information's really wasted. Like, um, you know, I, I learned physics. I, I then moved into economics, public policy. Um, and it's amazing how what you're really doing is you're seeing the world around you through those different lenses. And by by yes. doing that, you're getting a, a new kind of depth that you would not have been able to get had you just stayed in the one place. And so I, I'd say, you know, I, I'd welcome the different types of roles and jobs that come along and the different learnings that fascinate you because I think it just makes for a richer view of the world. Um, yes. And what I would say what I would suggest you ignore was that the second is that the second question the second part of that question yes um, that's right and this is more you know advice more than anything would be ignore any limitations that people um, put on you in terms of what you can and can't do um, I I loved physics so I, I started you know out as a physicist um, but it wasn't without its struggles. Um, you know, I wasn't the top student in, in many in many areas, but I think I just did it because I loved it. I, I, you know, I wasn't, I didn't think I'd be awesome at it. Um, and then when I went to doing public policy again, you know, it was like an eye opener for me that someone who did a physics degree would want to do something different after having done as much study as I had. Um, so I think, you know, I think being brave enough to step outside your comfort zone um, and ignoring what people say about, you know, what is best for you because they don't have the context that you have of, on your own life is always a good thing. Yes. Um, so ignore the naysayers. <laughs> enjoy, <laughs> enjoy the learning. Absolutely. And, you know, there's such a wealth of information out there that just enriches our entire experience no matter what we're doing. So there's really nothing to lose in being a bit more adventurous and brave in these things. And it's okay to make mistakes, right? Like I think um, yeah. I think that's part of the, the learning as well that, you know, it's, it's inevitable that everyone's going to fall and stumble at some point. Um, but that's also what makes the journey exciting. You'll make mistakes and that's part of the learning um it is it makes you more resilient yes <laughs> back to resilience yes. we finish off with resilience i love that exactly <laughs> perfect 
Well, thank you so much, Audrey. This has been such an amazing conversation that we've had today. And so many deep questions, so many philosophical questions that, you know, we haven't answered exactly. <laughs> but, you know, ones that we need to consider and, you know, maybe we'll find other people who are able to help us get us closer to that answer. So if people would like to know more about what you do and your work, where can they go? Check out my Medium site, um, Audrey Wozopulo. Um, and yeah, that's, you know, that's where I publish my latest um, blogs and thinking around anything in that in-between space, in-between um, tech and nature. And tech and nature. I love that how you describe your work as, as a liminal technologist. Like it, it's just, it's perfect. That's exactly, you know, bridging everything, bridging all of the different interrelated topics together. It's an exciting place to be, Michelle. I highly encourage anyone wanting to venture into that space. Absolutely. Well, thank you again so much. This has been a wonderful conversation and I hope you enjoy the rest of your evening. Thanks, Michelle. And thank you for sharing, you know, your, um, your stories too. I think it makes for such an exciting conversation when we're both able to bring different pieces together and um, really enrich the discussion. So thank you so much. Yeah. And thank you. I've really appreciated, you know, having this wonderful, rich conversation. It's been such a pleasure speaking with Audrey today about some very philosophical matters around data, algorithms, and how we apply these concepts to humans and humanity. To learn more about Audrey and what we discuss on the show, or to connect with us, please visit the Steampowered website at steampoweredshow.com. You can also read more of Audrey's work on Medium. The link will be in the show notes. If you enjoyed this conversation, please let me know. Subscribe to this channel, leave a comment, and share this with your geeky or geek curious friends. You can also support Steampowered on Patreon and Ko-fi, the links for which will also be in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Stick around for a little bonus content. Yeah, I, I hope it's useful to your to your audience too, because I, I realize a lot of it was very... I, tr I try to make it real, because I really think, I, yeah. I, I know in my bones that it's real, but it it sounds mm. philosophical. So I've had discussions, you know, with analysts and and ultimately it comes to this philosophical question, which is can everything be measured or can't it? And there's yes. two camps in that. There are people who say that every single thing can be measured and I fall in the other camp, which is you can't measure everything because the process of measurement itself is objectifying something. Yeah. Right? Because that's the process of measuring it um and yes. so you're taking one you're taking a truth at this point yes, in time yes and that's only, only a, that's only contextual and chronological like it's just that point in time yeah. and even you know um, memories yeah. like you talked about memories and compassionate com like computing and tech my memory of my childhood now is so different to my memory of my childhood even 10 years ago it's yeah. the same data but the way I perceive it is so different now. And I, I, I can't help but feel fear when I think about memories being collected by an algorithm where those memories don't change, right? That, that is, the, that is yes. it's static to some degree. Um, but me being a human, I have the prerogative to look back at a, a fight I had with a sibling and you know, feel really angry and indignated and yet you know, down the track feel guilty about this exact same situation, the same data, but have a completely different response to it um, as I would have yeah. at the time. 
And so again, it's that what's changed between then? The incident was the same. It happened at the same time. It is my sense-making capacity yes. that is changing the, the quality is not even the right word, changing the information. Right? It is. And you know, that, that's one thing that people talk about, the fact that because our memories are not immutable, it's all entirely different, dependent on context yeah. um, and the way that we develop as human beings because over time we gather additional information that will inform those memories in different ways. There's this book, I'm still reading it because it's, there's a lot in it. Um, it's called The Ego Trick by Julian Pagini. And it's taught, it talks about ego, the way that we think about who we are. And the blurb is, um, are you who you are five minutes ago, 10 minutes ago, or a year ago? Because in that time, things happen, like, I'm oversimplifying. In that time, things happen that change your perspective on things, that change the way you experience things yeah. or how you feel awesome. about things. So your memories are who you are and form who you are, but not all that you are because They've just led you on that journey okay. while you're changing who you are. That is so And it's wow. It is. Yeah. It, it's such a great book. And yeah, it's still going. So a fairly hefty book. Um but yeah, it when you try to measure people in that way or measure things in that way, you can't yeah, it's never going to be completely measurable because people change, because how the people feel about their memories change. And it's yeah. It's that, it's that sense making. 